All right. This morning we're going to be continuing our study of the promises of God. This has been the theme throughout our year. This is something that we've constantly been bringing up. We've been talking about the promises of God in, in many different ways. But once a month we, we focus in a lesson on a promise that God has made to us. He's made us many different promises. And we can see as we come into the New Testament that God fulfills all of his promises. He forgives. He gives us mercy as He has promised us. Uh, he, he gives us uh, joy as He has promised us. He gives us peace as He has promised us. Uh, and, and this morning we're going to notice the promise of God to give us a new obedient heart. This is uh, one that I was very interested in and wanted to study and looking forward to. Uh, and I've enjoyed this study very much and I hope that you will as well. Uh, when we look at the world around us, we see a lot of catastrophes. And the result of uh, all of these ca catastrophes are the consequence of evil in men's hearts. Over and over again, we see these different catastrophes. You remember Sandy Hook Elementary School, how evil that was. It just blew our mind. We couldn't even imagine someone would go into an elementary school and, and shoot people and kill people, kill, kill children. You remember Columbine. Uh, you remember 9-11. Uh, you, you think about all the child trafficking that happens in the world around us today. These are catastrophes. How is it possible? Why do these things happen? And we wonder about these things. We may even get confused. Because we never think of doing anything like that. How in the world could someone think of that? And how could they ever possibly go through that and actually do the things that we know have been done? Many times other people's evil makes no sense to us. But many times the evil that we commit is fully justified because we are not as bad as they are. I want to talk to you this morning about hearts. How is it that a heart grows so cold and so hard that it would commit such a horrible evil? As we're thinking about that question, this morning we're going to talk, to begin with, about one of the catastrophes we read about in the Old Testament. When you look at David, you, you think about him, he's a man after God's own heart, and there is so much to love about David. David is a man who stands out to us in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember how David began. He was a shepherd boy, and he was the youngest of, of eight brothers, and he's, he's out there living and, and shepherding, minding his own business, being probably bullied and mistreated by his older brothers, being the, the run of the family or the youngest of the family. And then we read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 17, going from obscurity and poverty to great wealth and, and power and everybody looking at him and honoring him as the wonder 
that he is. Because in, in 1 Samuel 17, if you remember the story, David goes out against Goliath. And he's young, and Goliath is this experienced 10-foot-tall warrior. And he goes out there in the name of the Lord with rocks, and he flings it, and it hits Goliath in the forehead, and he falls flat on his face. And he goes and takes Goliath's own sword and cuts off his head. It's just a beautiful picture of God delivering David from obscurity and poverty and lifting him up to being honored among everybody. And how does David respond to this? The most amazing way. David turns and honors God in everything that he does. We see David honoring God. We see him promoting God and thinking about God and and noticing how God is the one who gave him the victory. So God, eventually, after many trials and many struggles, God gives David a kingdom. Remember, he waits for Saul. He honors the Lord's anointed. Saul doesn't kill him, and God eventually gives him a kingdom. And we see David praising God. You see the Psalms. You see him, uh, he's, he's constantly praising God in the Psalms. He's bringing the ark to Jerusalem with dancing and, and excited about worshiping God. He's praising God. A man after God's own heart, and there is so much to love about David. Let me get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises David eternal glory. He says, Your descendants will reign on your throne forever, so long as they obey me and seek after me. What does David do in response to this wonderful promise of God? You know the story. We get to 2 Samuel 11. We learn about David committing adultery with Uriah the Hittite's wife and then having Uriah murdered to cover up his sin and to marry Bathsheba so that everything would be okay. What a horrible event, horrible catastrophe. So do we resemble David? As we read through that story, we think about all these things, we're just probably have a mixture of emotions about this. Uh, You know, honestly, we probably would never face a 10-foot giant with a bunch of rocks, unless that's the way you view your gun, is uh, just a rock slinger. Uh, But there's no way we'd go up against a giant. No way. No way we'd have that kind of faith in God. No way we'd have that kind of heart. But then we see his sin, and maybe we think, no way we would do that, but let's be real about it. Would we let prosperity harden our hearts and open the door to sin? I think the Bible tells us David's story because even David falls. Even David falls. And it's just kind of given us the picture that even the best of us fall. We're all broken people. We all have been corrupted by the world. And it may be that in the world's eyes, we're good people. We meet the standards of the world. But we don't meet God's standard. And we're not fooling God. We can fool the world. But we're not fooling God. 
Inside of us has been an evil and unbelieving heart like David's that has rebelliously gone against the will of God to serve ourselves and to harm other people. But notice how David responds. You turn over to Psalm 51. You see David at first begging God for mercy. In Psalm 51 verses 1 through 3 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see David begging God for mercy, begging him to cleanse him of the sins. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. In verse 6, he says he knows what God wants. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. As David is talking to God about what has happened with Bathsheba, about the sins that he has just committed, he begs God for mercy, and then he points out, God, you know what's inside of me, and you're happy, you're delighted when I openly express it. When I confess the truths that are in my heart, this is what you delight in. As ugly, as dark, as horrible as those truths are, you delight in hearing the truth that's inside of me. Think about David. How much concealing of truth has he done in his life? And yet he now knows... He just needs to open it up and let the Lord hear it from his own lips, from his own heart, from his own mind that he has done these horrible, awful things. And God delights in the truth that David is willing to share. Then we go down to verse 10 and we see David asking God to fix what's broken. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, I need a new heart. Wait, wait, David, you're a man after God's heart. You're a man who's, who pursues the will of God. And here's David broken, saying, I haven't been. I have failed. My heart is corrupted by the evil that is in this world. And I need a new heart. And I need a new spirit. And I can't make it happen. You do it, Lord. You help me. You put the good heart in me. You put the right spirit within me. So that then I can walk in your ways and do your will. He says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Recognition that his evil, unbelieving heart, his heart that has pursued his own ways and not the ways of God, has created a separation from God. And he's begging God, don't cast me away from your presence. 
I can't be with you if I don't have a good heart, and I want a good heart. And he's asking God to give it to him. I love that. I love that about David. I love his pursuit of the new heart and a recognition that without that good heart, there cannot be association, fellowship with God. And this is what David wants. We might ask the question, should God forgive David? Well, maybe after reading that, we're thinking, well, yeah, but wait a second. Here's a man who stole another man's wife and murdered that man. I don't know about that. What if that was your son? Should God forgive him then? You see, we're, we easily disconnect ourselves. And we easily get attached to that idea. And, we, and, then, and then whenever we attach ourselves, and then we start thinking for real, well, wait a second. No, no way. God should not forgive. No way. David needs to do some serious things to make up for his sin. Maybe. I don't think there is anything that he could do to make up for his sin. Well, look at what he says in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. We wonder, should should God forgive David? Well... David's not bringing him a bunch of sacrifices to make up for his sins. David brings nothing and just begs for forgiveness. Will God forgive? We know the story that he does forgive. But we also learn about something really amazing. God promises to give a new heart to us when we find ourselves in the situation of David. Let's look at a few different texts where we find these promises made to us. In Jeremiah 31, a text that's full of messianic language, talking about the covenant that those of us who are in Christ have received. This is what he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And I will give them Oh, this is swapping over. Uh, I will give them one, uh, uh, one heart. This is Ezekiel 11. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then Ezekiel 36. Sounds, sounds very similar. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. These three texts, you just kind of compile them together. In Jeremiah 33, God promises, I'm going to write my laws within you. So that people aren't going to have to tell other people who are in the covenant, you need to know the Lord. No, you're going to know the Lord. Everybody who's in the covenant knows the Lord because they understand who God is through the sacrifice He's given for them to enter into the covenant. That's the way the new covenant is. And that, and, and that our hearts are going to have the law written on them is an indication of what we're reading about in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36 that there is a new heart being put inside of us that is not a rebellious and stubborn and hard heart, but that is a heart that is broken and that now wants to obey. Notice the, the contrasting imagery. You've got the heart of stone. That's the heart that conceals the truth. The heart that doesn't want to know the truth. It doesn't want to believe the truth. The heart that doesn't want to submit to the will of God and do what God wants us to do. And you've got the heart of flesh. The heart that is broken over the sins that they've committed. The heart that is seeking to do the things that God wants them to do. And God says, that is going to be the heart that I work with and form into what it should be. God has this desire, this plan that, that is in His mind that He's going to take us, broken, sinful people who humble ourselves and submit our lives to Him, and He's going to put a good heart and a good spirit within us that we will keep His rules, keep His laws, obey His commands, and glorify His name. That's the plan of God, and that's what He promises to us. So David's prayer should be our prayer. And we should be hoping and praying and waiting for God to create that kind of restoration in me whenever I come to Him submitting and openly confessing the fact that I have had a hard heart. I've rebelled against God. And I'm unworthy to be in His presence. And God promises to restore. To give the new heart, to give the new spirit to help us develop obedience and faithfulness. So then the question comes to us, do we have that new heart? Do we have that new heart? What does your heart look like? I can't answer that for you. I can't see your heart. You can show up here week in and week out and put on a good show, and I have no clue. <laughs> You know, David did. But God knows what's in your heart. And you know what's in your heart. And we need to open our hearts to God and to ourselves. We need to be honest about where we're at spiritually with ourselves and with God. 
concealing it doesn't help anything. It only hurts the situation. And John 3, uh, after telling Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to receive the eternal life that's being offered, a very clear indication of you have to have a totally new heart, a totally different way of life, a transformed perception of good and evil and, and not be corrupted anymore. After all of that, he tells uh, the people, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You want, a, you want a good heart? You want a new heart? This is what Jesus tells us to do. He is the light of the world, exposing the darkness, and our tendency is to continue to hide and suppress the fact that we have a heart of stone and to think that we can get away with it and that, and that having a re revelation of all the sins and all the evils that we've been doing, hiding those things, is going to somehow preserve our life and make us all comfortable we're, we're ignoring the fact that the light has come into the world that we would change. We're ignoring the fact that God sees the sins that we commit, just like he saw David's sins. And that unless we step into the light, there is no hope. We want a new heart. We don't have the new heart. We want a new heart. This is what we must do. We have to open ourselves up to the truth of who we're not and who we really want to be. We need to receive Jesus, the light of the world, the light of God, the one who exposes all our sins and the one who provides a way for forgiveness even though we are broken and even though we are unworthy. We have to receive him with openness and transparency. And then we'll see the transformation take place. You study through the New Testament, you see the transformation take place. The New Testament church is made up of people with new hearts and new spirits. Their desire is to follow after the ways of God and to submit more fully to them. And the perfect example of this is Saul of Tarsus. A man who is going everywhere, capturing Christians and throwing them in prison, causing them to lose their livelihoods, maybe causing some of them to lose their lives. A stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious man who is transformed upon hearing the good news. And whenever we come to Philippians chapter 3, we read these words from that same man, Saul of Tarsus, who's now changed his name because his change has been so significant. His heart is nothing like the heart he used to have. Listen to what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. You see Paul being completely transformed because of the grace that was given to him because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He now counts everything in this world as rubbish. All those things he once put his trust in, he no longer puts his trust in. And how did he get to that point? Well, God put a new heart and a new spirit inside of Saul of Tarsus. And from that point, he started being changed. His heart was flesh. It started being cut by the word of God instead of rejecting the word of God. And there's a complete transformation that has taken place in him so that he can say his heart is flesh and not stone. Is that what we can say? The new heart can grow to spiritual maturity because it's open to correction. It's open to correction. I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 to the Corinthians of all people. We've learned about them recently. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. As we gather together and we study this book, that's what God is doing for us. If our hearts are flesh, God is writing on our hearts the truth of his love and his grace and his, his sacrifice for us. And it's supposed to change us so that our desires are not to do the things that we want to do, selfishly ambitious, but our desires are to do the will of God. We also read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those of us who are in Christ are a new creation. There's a new heart within us. There's a new spirit within us. There's a new mind. There's a new focus. There's a new purpose. There's a new body waiting for us. Everything inside is supposed to be changed, waiting for the new body that is as glorious as Jesus' own body. And that's what we all should be looking for forward to. The question is, are you really in Christ? Have you accepted the sacrifice he has offered to you? And are you really holding in yourself a heart of flesh, willing to change as the word of God is revealed to you? Do you hear the lessons on Sunday morning? Agree and say, man, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. I, I Doubt it, but that was a good sermon. And then you go home and you go back to what you're most interested in. Don't open a book. Don't look at it. Don't think about it the rest of the week. 
I'm just kind of giving you a little hint here. That's probably not the heart of flesh that has been cut by the Word of God and changed to be what God wants us to be. Think carefully about Israel. Before we close, I want us to think about Israel. We thought about David. Now let's think about Israel. Consider Israel's heart. What was wrong with Israel in the Old Testament? You remember, God saves them too, like David. He saves them from obscurity. Remember, they were Abraham that didn't even have any offspring. And he saves them from slavery in Egypt. And then he brings them out. And as they're going out, it's, it's very fascinating... Uh, their mindset after being saved, you remember the plagues, you remember the mighty working of God, all those things, their mindset is defiance and boldness. This is uh, Exodus 14.8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The picture is, here's Israel leaving Egypt, shaking their fist at Egypt, like proudly saying, yeah, you're getting what you deserve as though they are righteous and deserving of all this, and as though they were on God's side all along. When in fact, as God was doing this, they were saying, tell God to stop. He's making life harder on us. You continue in the story. Uh, you read about Pharaoh attacking them. Right after they shake their fists at Pharaoh, they go a little ways, and Pharaoh comes in after them with his armies. And listen to what they said. Uh, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to, bring in bring, done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You see the stubbornness and the rebelliousness of the people that they say, why'd you bring us up out of Egypt? What are you doing? And Moses calms their fears and says, God's going to fight for you. It's going to be okay. But God has just saved them through all these miracles. And here they are arguing against God. I can't believe you brought us out of Egypt. We'd have been better off if we'd have, gone, if we'd have just stayed in Egypt. And God goes on to show them many mighty works. He takes care of them in the wilderness and he promises to give them the land of Canaan. And they, enter, they go right to the border and they refuse to go in. They refuse to go in. Just consider Israel's heart in all of this. Here's God doing everything for Israel. Saving them, bringing them across, showing many mighty works, showing much power. And he brings them and he says, I'm going to give you this land. It's a good land and I'm going to give it to you. And they say, no, we're not going in there. You're going to destroy us. You're going to, uh, you're going to allow those enemies of ours to destroy us. It would have been better if we'd have stayed in Egypt. Again, they say that. We look at this story. I just summarized the first five books of the Old Testament for you. We look at this story and we think, why is Israel this way? 
How could they possibly be this way after all that they've seen? Well, the truth is, their time in Egypt has hardened their hearts. They have hardened hearts toward God. They're not really open to God. They're not really accepting of God. They're not really trusting and believing in God. They're not affected by the words that God speaks as though it is the truth that he has promised that he will most certainly deliver. And we look at all this and we kind of think, what is God doing in all this? Why does God keep bringing them in? All along the way, they've constantly been fighting him and rebelling against him, showing a hard heart. Why would God stay with hard-hearted people? I love this text. As I was studying this, it kind of blew me away a little bit. In Deuteronomy 31, it says, uh, The Lord said to Moses, this is at the end of Deuteronomy, okay? Moses is about to die. And the people are about to go into the promised land, the the next generation. Remember, the older generation was put to death. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, Have not all these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evils that they have done. Because they have not turned, they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall com- confront them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today. Before I brought them into the land that I swore to give. So all of that in Deuteronomy 31, Deuteronomy 7. I need a good transition so I know when I've changed, sorry. Uh, All of that shows you God knows the intentions of Israel. And yet he still purposed to bring them in. And we might think, why would God still bring them in? He just wants to bring them in. Listen to what he said about the people in Deuteronomy 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You, therefore, be careful to do the commandment 
and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Back in Deuteronomy 7, he pointed out why he's still bringing this stubborn, rebellious people into the land is because he has a desire and a purpose in himself to gather a people to be his own treasured possession. He wants to bless a people as his own people. He wants to have a people who obey him and who glorify him on the earth, as we've been studying all about in Ephesians. And so he knows they're going to be hardened, but he still sends them in and blesses them anyway. Why do we, why do we look at all this? <laughs> Obviously, uh, Israel has all the power of God at their disposal, but they refuse to trust God or believe his promise. How do we typically think about Israel? Well, I don't resemble them. I'm not like them, right? That's not us. If I saw the, all those works of God, I would surely obey God and keep his commandments. And I would surely go into the promised land expecting God to wipe out all these nations in front of me. We would never do what they did. Compare their heart to your own. How do we act when God saves us? How long is it before we become proud like they were? Thinking that we have accomplished something. and That we are righteous. That we are deserving of the blessings God has given us. How long does it take for us to build idols? You remember in the wilderness, God gives us commands. And soon after, they build a golden calf. Less than 40 days later, they, give, they build a golden calf. What do we do when the enemies are before us? Are we afraid? God wants to put a new heart in us. Not a stubborn, rebellious heart. But a heart that honors and glorifies God. A heart that is obedient to God's will. That does the things God has commanded us to do that wants to do the things that God has commanded us to do. And a heart that is willing to step out in faith against God's enemies. This is what glorifies God. The amazing thing is, He promises to give us that heart. So you may be here this morning, hearing all of this and understanding that your heart's not really where it should be. Um, been there plenty of times in the past. Might be there in the future. I sure hope not, but it might be there in the future. When that happens, how should we respond? Well, if you've never done it before, you need to respond by submitting yourself fully to God. You need to respond by entering into Christ and receiving the blessings that are being offered in Christ. That open transparency, that confession that I am a horrible sinner who is worthy of death will result in a wonderful blessing being given to you. Forgiveness of sins and a new heart that is able to be molded and formed to be like God.
That's what he promises. And as you look at yourself and you see all kinds of problems and all kinds of mistakes, keep that openness and that confession going. Be changed by the Word and let the Word change you. If you're here this morning and you've not been baptized into Christ and received the salvation that is offered in that baptism, uh, we want you to be. If you've not repented of your sins and made the change, the internal decision to obey God no matter what that means, we want you to. Is your heart a heart of stone or is it a heart of flesh? If it's a heart of flesh, you'll respond if you need to. And if we can help you, we will. If you have need, will you please come as we stand and as we sing?